Good morning, everyone. As usual, I am thrilled beyond words to be here. I was contemplating what we've already been through in our service, and uh, I've been in church ministry for about 30 years. Um, that's difficult to say. Um, but I assure you, what you get here on a regular basis is deep and rich and life-giving. I hope you value it. Um, and I love participating in this worship with you as a fellow worshiper. Thank you for having me. Let's pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, today's the second Sunday of Lent. Uh, does that get your juices flowing? Yeah, I thought so. Compared to the other seasons in life of the church, like Advent and, and Christmas and Holy Week and Easter time, Lent seems to offer very little that captures our imaginations. All of these other seasons have intrinsically something that just pulls us, and then they also uh, tend to line up well with our secular calendars. So we don't forget those Christian traditions because this other calendar is reminding us, frankly, honestly. But Lent is different. Lent begins with ash on our foreheads in a dark room. And it continues for this extended period of solemnity and sacrifice. Plus, Lent doesn't really fit very well with the familiar calendar that we follow. There's no national holiday named for or associated with this very unusual, strange Christian practice. Lent is a bit obscure. It's slippery. It's uncertain. It's repentance and mourning without self-flagellation. It's sacrifice without loss. It's fasting without starvation. In Lent, we are dealing with ultimate issues. We deal with an unseen God regarding life itself. It's the time when we admit, even embrace, perhaps even celebrate our finitude, our humanity, and the placing of all of our eggs in one basket, that basket that is completely out of our control. God himself. It's a terrifying thing to be out of control of your life, isn't it? Entirely dependent on someone else. If you've ever had a medical emergency and you felt what it's like to lose control of your own body, you know what uncertainty feels like. I know what this feels like. At that moment, um, uncertainty goes from being just an idea to being a life and death event where we find ourselves really torn, trying to trust the doctor or the caregiver, but then also feeling the depth of the grim reality of the situation that we're in. And I remember thinking in mine, can these people really help me? Given how I feel, though, it does seem unlikely. And maybe you've been there. And Lent is the season of uncertainty. 
where the heart of our humanity is challenged to admit our frailty and to let go of all the control that we think defines us. We think having a will and being in control is what gives us our humanity. And Lent is asking us to let go of that, to let go of self-belief, to let go of self-justification, personal achievements, ambition, moral performance, dependence on our own intellect or reason, to let go of emotional protection. Everything that we're told we must have to be truly human has to get lost in the darkness of Lent. Now, put that way, can you see why Lent might not be quite as popular as Christmas? And all this is true for those of us who are inside the church and have some idea of what this is all about. It's a challenge for us. To the person standing outside the church, unfamiliar with the Christian tradition, Lent is just meaningless, even offensive. See, we're bred as humans in the Western modern world to be certain about, well, pretty much everything. We want certainty about ourselves, about our government, our medicines, our science, our military, our school grades, our financial portfolio. We want everything on rock-solid, certain ground. We crave certainty. We minimize risk. That's how we live. And the places of uncertainty, like Lent, well, we'd rather avoid those. Two weeks ago, tomorrow, my dad passed away, and eight days ago, I delivered the homily at his memorial service. Dad was a simple man. He came from a family of blue-collar workers. None of the adult relatives in Dad's life had a college degree, and most didn't graduate from high school. He was the first in his family to earn a college degree, but it wasn't from Stanford, and the paper doesn't carry much weight today. For most of his life, Dad lived below the poverty line, and what he did have, he had a very bad habit of giving it away. Dad also wasn't known for his towering intellect or his entrepreneurial genius. Instead, he just simply believed what God said, he loved the people around him, he sacrificed greatly for them, and he brought laughs and joy to anyone who crossed his path, anyone, whether that was a high-powered business person or a waitress at a diner. His was true childlike faith that never questioned the sanity of going all in with an ancient male Jew who died a slave's death at the hands of a minor ruler in the corner of the Roman Empire. When I spoke at his service, there were three other family members there who have lost their childlike faith. One of them grew up with me, hearing the same sermons that I heard, reading the same texts that I read, and now he's turned his back on the uncertainty and mystery of faith in that man Jesus, and he sees science as the only true reality. The other two 
who are there are 24 years old and have been hurt by the church. Not really in traumatic ways, but enough. Enough to make them see her flaws and failures, and they've decided, along with a lot of other people, our day to fully deconstruct their faith. That's the term. They are deconstructed. And listening to them describe their current mindset about God and the world and themselves is breathtakingly confident. The kind of certainty that no 70-year-old should have, much less one of 24 brief years. Now, I love all of them, all three of them, very deeply, very much, and I always will. But they've decided that faith in the self and faith in the observable universe is solid ground, both for this life and the next. And the requirements for a trust and faith in this mysterious and unexpected God are just too much for them. They're too heavy. I'm struck by the juxtaposition of my late father with these three relatives. And I ask myself, was my dad a fool? Maybe he wasted his life. Maybe his willingness to wander and wonder through life was a tragic mistake that could have been avoided had he just simply taken the steps that everybody else knows we should take about the world, the certain, demonstrable, surefire means of success and prosperity. Bank your life on what you know, what you see, and go with that. That's what my other relatives have done. But instead, Dad opted for the strange and unpredictable world of following God who asks us to trust him while we wear a cross. And how do we know if he's right? How do we know that the uncertainty of following Jesus and the darkness of Lent will lead where we think it will? Will it go to eternal bliss? Will it go to the hope that is embedded in every human heart? And that was Abram's question in Genesis 15. Up to this point in the narrative, God had twice promised Abram that he would bless him, make him a great nation, give him his own land, both for him and for his descendants. And on both of those prior occasions, Abram didn't question God's promise. He didn't offer any verbal interaction to God, at least none that's recorded for us. But he just did what God asked him to do. He left his home in Haran, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then in chapter 13, God said, Survey the land. Look at all of this. I'm going to give it to you. And Abram did that. No comment from him. The promise of the land and a great nation seemed as outrageous to Abram as it would seem to us today. He was an old man, past childbearing years. And the proof that God offered for the promises up to this point in Genesis 15 was just simply, trust me. Go do it and trust me. And now in this chapter, God's reiterating his promise to Abram, but 
But this time, Abram says, hang on a second. <laughs> this is the third time you've been telling me this. It's very interesting. But I don't have a child. I don't know if you've noticed me. But look at her as well. She's not going to give child, you know. This is all in the Hebrew, in the text. I'm interpreting. And how, beyond that, does one just get land that belongs to someone else? It's a good question. And the scene that follows is one of my favorites in the Bible. I'm not sure there's a more significant or clearer picture of the gospel in all the scriptures, maybe even the New Testament. Genesis 15 is the heart of it. So placing the dead animals across from one another with a space in between, this was a common thing in the ancient world. A way of making an agreement. Obviously, it was serious. Death was involved. Blood was involved. Today, we sign contracts and we break contracts just as quickly as we sign them. They're usually worth about as much as the paper they're printed on. But a covenant in the ancient world was a life and death agreement. So blood had to be involved. And what the two parties were saying to one another was this what you see in these animals right here, this is what you can do to me if the terms of the covenant are not kept. If I don't fulfill my side of the deal, this is what happens to me. It was no small thing. Absolutely remarkable, right? Entering into the covenant, just having the covenant agreement ceremony costs something for the parties. I mean, they lost a source of income in the animals, right? or a source of sustenance. And that's bad enough. But now they're saying that not only will I lose income and a source of sustenance, but I'm willing to give up my life to keep this covenant with you. Now all of that was recognizable to Abram. All of that was normal. This was traditional stuff in the ancient covenantal world. But then the story takes a very unusual turn. Abram begins to experience a coma-like state and a great and terrible darkness. It's really difficult for us to understand. We're not sure exactly what it was. It seems that Abram's aware enough of what's happening, but he's clearly not in control. Something has overcome him. And in the middle of the darkness, God begins to speak. And it's interesting to me what he describes. God describes the upcoming slavery of Abram's descendants, but also their salvation. What he describes is the exodus from Egypt. The exodus is the great salvific event in the history of Israel. It defined them as a people. To some extent, use my words carefully here, it also defined their God. Or we could at least say, God became known to them as, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Who am I? You can find this throughout the prophets, throughout even the historical books. Who am I? I don't just have one name. I am the God who did this. I am identified with that salvific event. So his identity and their relationship to him became eternally linked in that exodus. So that's what God talks about in this scene with Abram. 
He's giving him a bit more information. He's pulling the curtain back a little bit more widely. First it was, <clears throat> just leave your home. Then it was, I'll make you a great nation. Then you'll have all this land that you see. Now in Genesis 15, here's a little bit more about your family, what they will experience hundreds of years from now, and I'm going to dramatically save them. Furthermore, incidentally, God's making these promises to Abram, but Abram isn't going to experience any of this. He's not going to see them. He's not actually going to possess the land. More promises from God, but he still hasn't answered Abram's question. How? How can all of this be? And then the climax of the text. It comes time to ratify the covenant when both parties walk between the carcasses. Only in this scene, we have something different. We have something new and startling. Abram becomes a passive observer in a fiery torch. Not The translation is a little unusual, but it's the same word that's used later for God's presence with Israel. The fire at Mount Sinai, the cloud, the pillar of cloud, it represents God's presence. So whatever form this is, fiery pot, fiery torch, whatever it is, this is the presence of God with Abram. And only this presence passes between the eyes. Nothing else. Not Abram. So what's God saying here? He's saying, not only may this brokenness and death happen to me if I don't keep my side, but may this brokenness and death happen to me if you don't keep your side of the covenant. It's mind-blowing to me that God still doesn't offer what we might want as proof for the promises. He just says again in a new way, trust me. But this time, don't just trust me, Abram, because I make a promise to you. Trust the God who is willing to die for your failure to keep the covenant. Now we've taken it to a new level. The guarantee that the promises will come true is God's own life. He never took away the uncertainty. He never answered the question, how? He just said, trust me because I'm willing to give my life if you break the covenant. See, trusting God isn't the absence of uncertainty. Real faith grows within the soil of uncertainty. Now, think about that. Think about all the unanswered questions we have about God. All the ones we don't know about life. What's right? What's wrong? Which church is faithful? Which church is compromising the truth? All the current issues of the day, along with all the conflicts and disagreements, both within and out with the church. Think about all of that stuff that we're bickering about, that we wonder about, that we take positions on, 
that we divide from each other on? How many people that we know have abandoned the faith because these questions weigh on them or the church has disappointed them? All of which is probably true. But here's what it boils down to. Will we trust a God who is willing to enter into a blood covenant with us and take death into his divine life because of our faith? Is that the sort of God you could follow? The sort of God is so committed to restoring the world and bringing abundant life to all people, is he worth trusting, regardless of all the unanswered questions that we have? Question, how did Abram and his descendants do in keeping their side of the deal? Good? Bad? Not so good. How did God do? Thousands of years after this event, the God-man, broken and bleeding, hung on a Roman cross, and a deep and terrifying darkness came over the land for three hours. And he cried out that he had been abandoned by everyone, even his own father, cut off, isolated, because his people had broken the terms of the covenant. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you under my wings, but you would not. There were a lot of things my dad didn't know or understand. There are more that I'm not sure of, and questions I'd love to have answered that are not. And if you want to share with me your personal trauma at the hands of the church or bemoan the lack of scientific evidence for the claims of Christianity, well, I may not be, offer, I'd be able to offer you a satisfactory response. Yes, the church is messy. And the kind of proof we desire may not be available. But if this is true, if this God took on death, not just for Abram, but for all of his descendants, indeed the whole world, for no failure of his own, wasn't that good enough? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.